Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Because we are at war. And so we have been talking about that. We are at war and we are encouraged to stand firm. Paul writes then in Ephesians chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord. Finally, as to what remains, based on all the doctrine that he has taught us to this point. Now, in order to engage for God what you have learned, he writes then, Finally, or as to what remains, let yourself be strengthened. God is going to do something to you and for you. It's a passive idea. It will happen to you. You don't have to muster the strength. Even though it communicates that sort of in our English, you need to strengthen your... No, in the Greek language, it's passive. The idea is this will happen to you. You will be strengthened. Put on, though, this is your part, the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And we said in our first night where we introduced this series, in this one verse, I kind of do like the old English than the King James Version for that one verse where it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's an old English word I haven't used in years, and you and I just don't use it anymore. My favorite, though, was the Awana youngster who was memorizing this, coming out to church just for Awana. How did he pronounce it? The what? the willies of the devil, okay? And that really fits the context. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the willies of the devil. Why is that? Because we are at war, a spiritual war. And so notice with me, even as we look forward, we are at war. And it says then, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the forces of this world of darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Because we are waging a war then, a spiritual battle, we are told to put on spiritual armor beginning in verse 13. Six elements in the panoply of the armor of God, culminating then in calling on the commander prayer. But we are working through the panoply, the entire complement of the believer's armor, We looked at two elements in this armor. Notice then verse 13, and then we begin in 14 with that. Therefore, take up the full armor, the panoply of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. All right? Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having on a belt of truth that we said speaks about our commitment, our commitment to truth, truthfulness, and the truth of the Word of God. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt with truth. The loins girt is an old Hebrew expression that goes all the way back to the time when Moses led Israel out from Egypt after the plagues. Girt your loins eat the Passover, and be ready to move out as it were. But the soldier would wear a tunic that would come down to about here, about the length of our trousers. That's the normal everyday garb. Just like in Jesus' day, people wore a tunic. And they 
lived that way. It was custom to just wear that. And the soldiers did as well. Around the barracks, they would wear that. However, when the time came to engage or get ready, we're moving out. We're about to march to war. What they did is they would put on a belt. They wore about three belts, actually. But one of the belts or the sash that they would put on allowed them, then they would clip it on them or put it on them. It's the piece that you see when we bring our soldiers out that has some dangling pieces that actually protect the abdomen as well. But they would put that belt on. That's the belt. They would then cinch up or pull up or blouse their tunic. They would bring it up from the ankle, and it would allow them to to bring it up above knee length and above their knee. And what that did, and by getting it above the knee, it allowed them to run without any entanglements. And that was the purpose then, so that you could be now committed to the cause, okay? And so the expression, girt your loins, was an expression to communicate then, commit yourself. Get ready. Engage now. Do you realize the seriousness of this? This spoke then of commitment to truth, the aletheia, the body of truth, the authority upon which we then anchor our faith. Moreover, he goes and says then, therefore, take up this armor, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on, and I'm making a big deal about having on, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate, as we looked at the several elements of the breastplate, and we showed some of the images of that. And let's go through a couple of these real quickly. We saw the soldier. We've looked at him in the past, and there you see him now in full armor. We looked at the belt, Now let's look at the breastplate. There's one modeled for you down here. There's an image right here. But we said several of the breastplates not only looked like this, the metal, and that is more of an officer breastplate because it was easily recognized. Many soldiers wore breastplates that will look like some of these schematics that we have or some of these illustrations. And as you look at those several breastplates, you see some that are male, the linking up of the the chains. The poorer soldier actually then wore the one that would be shaved hooves or shaved horn, and then they were stitched together, overlapping scales, okay? Something that would protect, but all the breastplates covered two elements. They extended from the neck, and we'll look at the one that we've been looking at, and the one that we actually have here was a leather breastplate, And this is the one, and that is how they were fashioned or looked. It allowed the greatest mobility, but it protected from here up. It protected the heart. And in Bible times, they spoke of the heart as the seat of the soul. From it emerged, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. And then it talks about them. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart was thought to be the seat, the thinking element. They knew of the brain, but they, this is where your will emerges from. Okay? The heart of a man. And so it referred to how you thought and how we talk about 
the bowels. 1 John 3, 17, if a man sees someone in need and shuts up his bowels of compassion, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Rhetorical question, meaning what? The love of God doesn't dwell in him. If you see someone and you look at them and you go, man, I feel bad. I, I hurt when I see that. You feel it or... My granddaughter today got baptized at 2.30 this afternoon in the bay at Tampa. And she called me right after and she read me her testimony that she wrote herself and spoke. My wife was watching it and she called me and said, Allie's getting ready to go down. She's getting in the water. And she looks nervous, pretty nervous, because they took her in the bay and they took 10 adults and others, my granddaughter's in water up to her chin. So to baptize her, all you got to go is, okay. <laughs> yeah. But when she got in the water, it was like fear and trepidation set in. But I saw her yesterday. Remember we talked this morning in the restaurant? So Hallie and I are rehearsing. And she said, Papa, I'm kind of nervous. I can't eat. Okay, don't feel like my stomach is not, I'm not feeling real good. She was worried about giving the, her testimony. She was feeling it in her splonkna. Okay, <laughs> the splonkna. And so, and Leo, you said last week, what do we call those? You were telling me as a medical doctor that down in the abdominal area, feelings, what are they called? The splanknic blood vessels. Not Sputnik, Splanknik, all right? The Splanknik blood vessels. And when you, that's what makes your stomach have the butterflies, isn't it? How about that? Okay? You feel it in your stomach. Your emotions. A breastplate of holiness. Holy thinking. Holy feeling. Right? Righteousness, holiness. Say it with me. Be ye holy. Why? For I am holy. Think holy. Feel holy. Let your emotions be controlled in holiness. And in a shifting culture that now says these lifestyles are acceptable, those images on the billboards. 200 miles from home, Christian. Wherever we go, there is the temptation. The numerous images that pass before our eyes draw us away and draw us into a culture that says, away with righteousness. But to keep from being defeated, to keep yourself from being caught in a world of pornography or a world of temptation or a world of well, what's wrong with that lifestyle? What's wrong with that? God says what? Be ye holy. Protecting our thoughts, protecting our emotions, the breastplate of righteousness, and having, verse 15 we pick up now, and having on your feet, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, this is one of the tough images that you and I need to discuss here for a moment. Let's talk about the picture of the shoes here for a moment. And I'm going to image a Roman soldier as he's climbing here right now. And, and so as you look at this, 
It's hard, and there were a pair of sandals there sitting right here. Take my word for it. The Roman soldier wore a sandal different from any other army of the day. They were called collegae, or the collega sandal. The Roman soldiers wore a piece of leather that would be relatively thick, perhaps as much as three-quarter to one inch thick on the soles and the heel. It would be fastened all the way up, and they wore it, and you'll see even as this image, but they actually ran the strapping up the calf. It fit or was anchored to your foot like a boot. It allowed more flexibility than a ski boot, but the best image to do it would be for you and me to think of somebody putting on cleats and putting on a pair of cleats that would come just above the ankle. So whether you play football or soccer and you wear cleats, what's the purpose of a cleat? Stability, to give you traction. Now, the Roman soldier wore the the cleated boot, the caligae. And here's the difference. Most soldiers, whether they were Jewish or Greek, did not wear anything like that. They just wore a flat-soled shoe, leather bottom, wood bottom. But the Roman soldier wore one that had leather, wood, leather. Through it was pounded then nails, hobnails, that would be anywhere from three quarters to an inch and a half long. It served two purposes. You see, as you went to a battle scene, and as soldiers marched through or ran through, and the armies would attack each other, and they would go out, they fought battles much differently than we do today. As a matter of fact, some of our battles, some of our pilots are sitting in places like Nevada and others, and they are flying then drones that are flying in Afghanistan. And they are flying them by radar halfway around the world. And they sit in what look like simulators, but they're actually flying planes. And so that's how wars are conducted so differently today. In that day, they took the entire army out and they met on a field. And nation upon nation would meet then out in these fields. And there you'd have the thousands of soldiers engaged. And as the armies would meet, you used every tactic you could to stop an army before they actually encountered. So they dug pits. We call them punji pits. In those pits would be spikes or sharpened rocks or glass. Not only did they bury those in the ground, but they also then tried to engage on flat fields where they put tar pits or where they had then laying, as it was, brush. So as the army began battle, what would they do? Set it afire. Barefooted or wearing soft sandal, you can't walk through that for obvious reasons. A Roman soldier now is going to come walking through that with this collegae boot like no other army had. And they could march through, and it could keep them then going through. But however, the other thing it did, the Roman soldiers formed a phalanx different than any other army as well. We'll see a shield in a little while. We'll talk about it. They used this shield called a scutum, rather large, And they linked them. They actually engaged them shield upon shield and over the top. It looked like an ancient army tank. You could actually run a chariot over the top. And they would then put their spears out the sides and the front. And you could move that in and out of a battle scene. 
Those soldiers could stand and hold that shield and not be moved because they had planted themselves, and they would plant leg against leg, shield against shield, and they would stand like this with an inch and a half cleat buried into the ground. See, unmovable. Stand what? Firm. And so we're talking about this cleated boot. Josephus, the ancient historian in his book of wars, chapter 6, says these shoes are thickly studded with sharp nails. He talks about how he heard coming down the streets of Jerusalem these hobnailed soldiers marching. And he talks in one of them, he says it was actually a humorous thing to watch some Jewish zealots running away from the Roman soldiers. Problem was, on rock, you can't run very well with these cleats. Did you ever try running with cleats on a sidewalk? Okay, there they don't work, okay? In a battle, they do work greatly. Now, he talks about your feet having them shod, having on these boots. Now, notice, here comes the interesting part of the verse. And having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What does Paul mean? It is a difficult interpretation, and it has led to much interpretation, misinterpretation. I've picked up many commentaries on this, and they always talk about the gospel of peace being then the one thing that we have and that helps us in the battle and as we are in this world engaging Satan is the witnessing and the gospel as we share it and, and win over against the enemy. No, no, no. The reason it's difficult that way is because there are a couple of verses that come to mind when we hear our feet shod with the gospel of peace. For instance, you'll hear, and if you remember Isaiah 52, verse 7, Isaiah 52, verse 7, listen as I read where it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. That verse then by Paul in Romans 10, verse 15 is cited, How will they preach? Well, let's go back to verse 14. You know this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things or the gospel of good tidings. And so with that in mind, people have equated this, your feet, these sandals with the gospel sharing it. It's not what he's saying. And the reason is, is because... In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, the unsaved are not here. They are not being witnessed to. We're not talking about preaching the gospel. This is talking about the individual believer in a spiritual battle, in a life and death wrestling with Satan battle. You are in a wrestling match, a hand-to-hand for your life against Satan. You're not witnessing to him. You are holding and standing firm, holding with these booted, cleated preparation of the gospel of peace. And so the image here is not walking. It's not out witnessing. You are told instead, do what? Stand, stand firm. 
So what is meant? Well, it's wrapped up in the phrase, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let's begin with that expression, the preparation. What's he talking about? What makes it difficult is this is the one occurrence of that word in the entire New Testament. And when that happens, we refer to that in Greek as a hopox legomena. You don't need to remember that, all right? But that's a trigger word to us. That's, that means, in interpreting this passage in Bible commentators, it means this is the one occurrence. And when a word occurs one time, you scratch your head. See how many problems I've had with the New Testament? <laughs> you scratch your head and you say, okay, now the work begins. Now I've got some real exegeting, reading out of the Scriptures, explaining to do. The word preparation, as we look at this, the Greek word hedomasia, and you only hear it here then. So where is this word found? The closest thing is in Titus 3.1, which talks about, and you don't need to turn there, I will, but I'll read a form of the word. The verb form is found in Titus 3.1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. There it is, to be ready. And there it is. There's the verb form of this noun. So what does it mean? What is to be ready? In Hellenistic Greek, so we go outside the New Testament and we look at classical Greek and Hellenistic Greek. When you built a building and you made ready a building or you're getting ready to build something, before you even start to build the superstructure, and I'll have one of our developers, I'll ask Wayne Witt, what do we we lay before we build a building? The footing, the foundation. The Greek word for footing or a foundation is the word hedomasia, translated the what? Preparation. We're going to build a building, you lay the preparation. Or you lay the what? The footing. Well, now that sort of fits here, doesn't it? The footing or the foundation. Your shoes are an image that you and I are to have a foundation under us called the what? The good news or the gospel of peace. The good news that I am at what? Satan is attacking me and I am anchored on what? The fact that I am at peace with God. God and I are on the same side. I once was separated from him. I was an enemy, alienated, the Bible says. Now I am at peace. And I cannot be moved from that. Does that occur in this study before? Go with me back to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Remember what Paul starts out with the believer's armor? Finally, my brethren, or it's what? It means After all the doctrine that has been taught. Remember in Romans, you build all the doctrine, then you make the practical application in chapters 12, 13, 14 through 16. Okay? Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. After all that doctrine. And he does that in all of his letters. And after all the doctrine of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Now, in order to put all this together, you need to think of yourself as a soldier. 
And so what he's doing is he is saying, take everything that was taught in chapter 2, and you need to anchor yourself to that. What was in chapter 2 begins, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. At one time you served in his army of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. In other words, there used to be a day when you and I lived there, every one of us. We were dead until we became regenerated or what? Born again. Go with me on down just a little further to chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember... Verse 12, remember, chapter 2, 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off, cut off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, he is our what? He is our peace. I'm reading on in Ephesians 2 for just a moment. And he says then that you were far off. He has made our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments. In other words, you and I once were completely separated from God. And the most important thing for you and I to remember now in our Christian life is that you and I can stand firm on the what? fact that you and I are at peace with God. And if we have that, we cannot be moved. Okay? Going on a little bit further with the preparation, and this gives us, and we said it, we're giving a name to each one of these. The belt of truth speaks of commitment. The breastplate of righteousness speaks of consecration. The sandals of the gospel speak of a confidence. But we go on then to the last element that we'll look at, the shield of faith. And as we look at the shield of faith in verse 16, let's go there. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, folks... Up to this point, it talks about having on a belt. And it talks about having on a breastplate. And it talks about having on these sandals. They are to be what? Have on and left on. And so they become part of the dress that you and I wear, that become part of how you and I as we think then holy thinking, holy emotions, at peace and confident with God in our relationship, committed to the Word of God to truth, and committed to the Savior who is truth. These things never come off of us. In this image, they are what you and I have attached to us. This is the essence of our faith in our Christian life and how we conduct it, all right? But there are moments, there are times, then when a soldier perhaps is, as it were, not under attack, he's sitting in a barracks, or he may be around other soldiers, but then you hear the clarion call. Gentlemen, to your battle stations. 
or you are under attack. And what you do at that point is you take up. You grab something now because something unusual is coming at you. And you grab a shield. You don't go to lunch. You don't go to the mess hall with a shield. But in a moment of battle, you do. You grab a shield. At that time, you also put on a helmet and you grab a sword. And so the last three elements of the armor, on different occasions, at different times, you will take it up. You're going to need this now. There will be different days, different months. And at that time, what you need to do is grab this. And he talks about the first of these that you pick up is this shield of faith in verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so in this taking up idea then, he pictures this shield. And the Roman soldier carried two kinds of shields. One of them was this round one, about 18 inches to 2 feet in diameter. You wore it on your forearm. It's called an aspis. And it was round, and it was used to deflect a sword in a battle. The other one, the Latin word is the scutum, S-C-U-T-U-M. The Greek word is thurion. Remember in the book of Revelation, Stephen was preaching about the church at Thyatira? This is a Greek word, Thyatira, or Thyatira, is the word for a door, the doorway to Asia Minor was what the city was named. A thurion is a door. This shield is about, and they made these two and a half feet wide, four to four and a half feet tall. The average height was four and a half feet. And they made them then, what they did was, they made, it was made of wood or with a steel frame. And this one even is heavy too, even as an, a replica of one, and it's fairly thick. But what they did is they made it out of wood and they covered it with at least two layers of leather. Sometimes they formed metal and then they bonded leather and more leather. The entire shield would be anything from one half inch to one inch thick. Before they went into battle with a scutum, they took, and by the way, these things could, could be locked or ganged at the top and they could be ganged on the sides. Actually, like a door, you could get down behind this thing and almost hide behind it, couldn't you? See? I can stand up full height and hide behind it. Uh, Okay. Roman soldiers were my height. All right. And then there was Goliath, and this came up. No, actually. But what they did was, this thing is heavy the way it is. Soldiers who carried this carried the spears. Okay. They took this thing before a battle, and they soaked this for several hours in water. And that leather, getting even heavier... But what the enemy would do is they would take an arrow, they would soak it in tow or pitch, and then they would, as you went into battle, remember we talked about the fields, you'd ignite them, or they also fired them at soldiers. And when then the tow hits you, it splatters. It's almost like napalm. It stays lit and burning on enemies. They fought horrible battles, didn't they? And this thing here, then with its would collect the arrows. And actually, if you fired a dart or an arrow, it could do what if it was wet? It could extinguish it. And that's how it worked. 
So the purpose of the shield. Skevington Wood writes this about it. Commentator. Soldiers often fought side by side with a solid wall, a testudo then of shields. But even a single-handed combatant found himself sufficiently protected. After the siege at Dyrrhachium, Sceva counted no less than 220 darts or arrows sticking in his shield. For the Christian, this protective shield is faith. Only in this instance does Paul indicate the effect of a particular piece of armor. With such a shield, the believer can extinguish all the incendiary devices flung by the devil. Herodotus described how cane darts tipped with tow were dipped in pitch and then ignited. Octavius used such arrows against Antony's fleet at Actium, and they were not unknown even in Old Testament times. The reference is not, as some surmise, to poison darts producing fever. No. The Christian shield effectively counteracts the danger of such diabolical missiles, not merely by arresting or deflecting them. That's the key. This shield here, if you hit it, this metal one, if you hit it with an arrow, what would it do? It would deflect it. You have a shield that will actually extinguish it. That's really important. It renders it completely useless or thwarts it. And that's important. The shield of what? The shield of faith. Believing God. And then what the enemy would do as they went into battle and they had arrows, they didn't fire from just the front. You see that in the movies. They tried to get higher ground. And what the goal was was to fire from what? Every conceivable angle. And so they would hold the line to keep from letting you get out on the flanks, okay, or flank you. But that's what an enemy would do in ancient warfare. They would fire at least from three sides if possible. See, because this only allows protection from what? Yeah. So they're going to come from every angle possible. That's why the Roman soldiers then came up with, we not only stand side by side, what else do we do? Over the top. By the way, that's going to be important because the guy next to you, when they're firing from the side, would also help protect you. Think of that image for the church. Okay? And the need for brothers and sisters in the faith praying for one another and helping to protect. But what are we talking about? The shield of faith. And what happens is this as the devil fires these darts, symbolic then of seducing temptations or impurity or selfishness or greed or lust or fear or vanity or disappointments, everything. And what he does is he fires these missiles of doubt at you and me. And he did it at Jesus. He did it at Eve. He does it at people. How does the shield work? Well, when under temptation and attack, you take the shield of belief, belief in God's Word, and what you do then is consistently apply what we believe. You take the promises of God when Satan causes you to doubt. You take the promises of God and you quote those back or you cling to them and you actually extinguish his doubts. Amen? I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs before we close. In his six-volume commentary on the book of Ephesians, the very last chapter, the last book, an entire book on the believer's armor by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a beautiful picture of this one piece. 
And I won't be using them for each of the elements, but I do want to on this one. And I want to read a few paragraphs. Listen before you pack up here because there's a couple of things we want to share yet. The Apostle Paul is telling us that we must be prepared for what may be described as satanic attacks and assaults, which at times can be usually fierce and fiery. An understanding of this is of vital importance to you and me in our spiritual warfare. Many masters of the spiritual life have described attacks in detail by Satan. Think, for instance, he says, most Christians have heard the famous story of Luther and his ink pot and of his throwing it at the devil. You see, Luther was deeply conscious of the devil's presence he felt in his room, and he could not get away from him. Have you not experienced this also when you are reading the Bible? You can read a newspaper and concentrate on it. But when you start reading the Bible, for instance, thoughts and ideas come from all directions and you find it almost impossible to concentrate. Where do they come from, he asks. Then he's a few paragraphs later, page 302. But there are times and seasons when the enemy is unusually active in this respect. The analogy of warfare is very helpful here. In the First World War, in particular, when trench warfare was practiced, There were days when there was kind of a lull. If you exposed yourself, you might lose your life by being shot. But on the whole, there was a lull some days in which nothing was happening. Then suddenly a barrage would come from the enemy's lines. Something comparable to that happens in the spiritual realm every day. You never know what a day is going to bring forth. The fact that you may have had a wonderful day of blessing yesterday does not guarantee that all will be well tomorrow. That may be the very occasion when the enemy will suddenly hurl his darts upon you of all types and kinds and shapes and from all conceivable directions. There are times when the enemy concentrates on individual Christians, on churches, sometimes it seems upon countries. And in this malign manner, he does his utmost to destroy the work of God by hurling these fiery darts at us. These darts can take almost any form. The commonest of all is regarding thoughts. The devil hurls doubts at us. Some of the greatest saints have been plagued from time to time by horrible doubts. They were hurled at them. Thoughts came into their minds. Suggestions, queries, questions arose. The devil has often plagued some of the noblest saints with blasphemous thoughts. Blasphemous thoughts about God. Blasphemous thoughts about the Lord Jesus Christ. Or the devil may hurl words and phrases, oaths, horrible language at the Christian, trying to confuse him, trying to persuade the Christian that he is not a Christian and that he has never been a Christian. But sometimes the darts take the form of imaginations. We are confronted by the wiles of the devil, and his ingenuity is almost endless. He can conjure up scenes. He can depict events. He can paint things very vividly. He can almost make them real. Thus he hurls his fiery darts at us in the realm of our imaginations. He does the same in the realm of the desires and the passions and the lusts, inflaming, inciting, rousing them with tremendous heat. Temptation is the lot of every Christian. It happens to all at some time or another in some shape or form, and you and I must be ready for it. We must always have our shield of faith in a convenient position so that we can take it up at any moment. It is our only hope. Three pages later. Faith here then means the ability to apply quickly what we believe 
so as to repel everything the devil does or attempts to do to us. So I define faith in the shield of faith as meaning the quick application of what we believe as an answer to everything that the devil hurls at us. That's good, isn't it? And that's why God is described as our great buckler and our shield. And we go to him. Faith doesn't mean, well, I've got to muster up some kind of a belief. No, faith always has an object. What do I mean by that? In Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith, they believed God. It's not just believe anything. It's believing what? God and his promises. That's your shield of faith. Claiming the promises of God. And when those doubts come, and by the way, well, does Satan, no, he doesn't. We know that. But he does tempt. He even tempted Jesus, who is tempted in all points like as we are. He understands and he knows. And he is there to strengthen you. All you have to do is have on girding yourself with the truth, having on a breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod, anchored. You are footed to the fact that I am, God and I, we're one. I can't be moved. I'm at peace with God because I'm his and he's mine. No longer separated from him. I'm on the winning team. When Satan tries then to throw doubts at us and tempt us as he did Christ, what did Jesus do? Took up the promises of the word of God and actually put out those doubts. That's what you and I need to do. Okay? The shield of faith. This week... Let's go to battle and hold our ground. Father, thank you for our time in the Word. I pray your blessing now on that which we've heard as we apply it to our lives. Thank you that we can stand here anchored in truth, committed to truth, built up in the faith. Use the words of Paul to strengthen us and encourage us this week. Give us victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.